Welcome, welcome. We're in a series right now called Unstoppable. It's a series that highlights the unstoppable movement of God to bring heaven down to earth, to bring light to the darkness, to make the dead rise, and to make lost people found again. Uh, my, name is, my name is Dirk. I'm the preaching pastor here at Encounter. I've been around here for about eight years, which if you're keeping track is actually longer than this has been a church, which means I was around when it was an idea between my wife and I in the living room of our first apartment. And because of that, I feel like I get a unique perspective and every once in a while, I'm just going to share those. And, uh, and it has nothing to do with the message this morning, but I'm going to do that anyway. So I, I want to highlight something that I just, I've been hearing, like this, it's a weird church we've got here. It's weird that like so many of you have turned out and it's just terrible, awful weather. And the first uh, worship experience this morning was crowded too and couldn't find seats and all that. It's weird that you do that, but I think it's awesome. It's weird that I see Ubers pull up and drop people off and pick up again. Like you don't see that too often in church, but like I'm out there, I see that all the time. You're weird church and I love it. I love it. Um, one of the things that sometimes people uh, say to me about you is like, I, <laughs> yeah, you heard that right is that uh, people over a certain age might not feel comfortable because there's like a lot of young people around. And, and the weirdness of the church uh, makes people feel uncomfortable because this is a demographic that's not typically associated with like high rates of church attendance. And I just want to honor that and say, it's weird, but it's also this awesomely beautiful thing to see as well. And so I, I want to highlight that and to say, if, if you find yourself, if you find yourself maybe feeling uncomfortable because there's a lot of younger people around and that's like me too. And some of my friends were like, seriously, man, I'm 35 and I feel kind of like older on the side of things. And I want to say honestly and 100% truth, real talk, is that I think that is like, the, that is the devil's way of coming in between us and creating disunity in the church and, and division in the church. We're going to hear a story later on this morning from the book of Acts, continuing on in the series where the devil doesn't try to try to attack us from the outside, but attack us from the inside. And I think at Encounter, one of the ways that he's doing that is by playing this age thing to create that disunity. So whoever you are, wherever you came from, whether you drove here in a minivan, in a pickup truck, in a car, or an Uber, welcome. Like this place is, is your home. One more item on that is that um, a lot of you are going to create, this is just cold heart statistics, a lot of you are going to I'm gonna make a decision between like 18, 22 of whether or not you're gonna to belong to a church, like any church, any spiritual community, whether it's this one or moving on from here to, to somewhere else. You're like, you're gonna make that decision in between 18 and, and 22 and the majority of people choose not to. So even if you go to a Christian college in the area, the majority, research shows, the cold hard stats show, that you're probably not going to choose to become part of a spiritual community, of a church. And, uh, and that's tragic because that means also that as you go on and if you have children, like there's a family tree element there, a generation thing that's, that's now affected. But by God's grace, some of you, many of you, if you're here today, especially, you're going the other way, right? You're zagging when everybody else is zigging and it feels like, and you're being weird, but that's okay because normal doesn't work anyway. And you're saying, I'm going to become part of a church community. I'm gonna be a part of this spiritual family of believers here. We're gonna do this thing. And some of you have even taken 
that to an extent of having your heart broken for other people. And so on your college campuses, you're walking down the paths, inviting people to church, and you're going down the hallways in the dorms, inviting people to church because you know the impact that it can make to be part of a faith community, not just for the next four, three, two, one years, but for the rest of your life. And the impact isn't just for the rest of your, but then the family tree that comes after that, that, that you get to be a part of changing just by inviting somebody to church or paying for their Uber or crowding it in or whatever it is. So anyway, that's just a beautiful thing that I see around here and I love. Nothing to do with the message this morning, but this message this morning is still about the church. It's about the unstoppable movement of God that we call the church. Remember, it's not an institution. It's not a, it's not a building, but it's a people of God. It's a movement, a movement of God. And up till this point in the story in the book of Acts that we're looking at, it's just been good news all the time. And all the time, like amazing, powerful things happening, miracles happening, people speaking in other languages, um, people, uh, people having 3,000 added to their number in a single afternoon. Up till this time, it's, it's watching it last week as a, as a man who was paralyzed from birth stands up and walks. He doesn't just stand up and walks. It says that, that he leaped up like a deer that it says in Isaiah, like he jumped around this incredible thing. And this morning, it's like we hit a wall. This morning, we get to a passage where it's just the brakes uh, come grinding to a halt on this movement. And so this morning is a story for any of you who have experienced failure. This morning is a story for any of you who have experienced setbacks. This morning is a story for any of you who have wallowed in defeat or have had moments of weakness. Today is for you because what we're going to see in the story this morning is that sin is bad, but our God's grace is amazing. Amen. Uh, Acts chapter 4. You can turn to it. You can grab a Bible. Uh, we're going to get to our passage, which is actually in Acts chapter 5 in just a moment, but I have to set it up and do a little compare and contrast because on the one hand, we've got Acts 4, we've got Barnabas. So that's not actually his name. His name is Joseph, but he's, he's called Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And it's like this guy, whenever he's around, he's encouraging. So they start calling him Barnabas. I'm starting in Acts chapter four because we meet Barnabas selling some real estate and giving the money away to the apostles. The laying it at their feet is for them to distribute as they see fit. It's this incredible guy, Barnabas. Um, it's, it, he is the picture of the gospel transformed life. So we, we say sometimes around here that this is, this is what the gospel does. It, the gospel makes us hold things loosely and people tightly. Given enough time, enough pressure, that's what the gospel does. It makes us hold things loosely and people who matter to God tightly. And that's Barnabas. Whatever he has, he'll give it away so that, so that we can see the apostles can help people stay tight into God's tight grasp. Contrast that picture of Barnabas with the picture in Acts chapter 5 with a man named Ananias. Uh, 5 verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, which is a name that means God is gracious, uh, together with his wife Sapphira, a name that means beautiful, also sold a piece of property, just like Barnabas. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back 
part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. I wanna highlight something that what he is gonna get, how he is gonna get himself into trouble is that even though he keeps some of the money back, he pretends as if he's giving everything away, which is kind of a, kind of a bummer of a problem, really, because he never had to give anything away in the first place. When, when we pass like buckets around, why we call it an offering, not a demanding, is that you don't have to do it. Like nobody has to do this thing. He didn't have to sell some property and give anything away if he didn't want to. It's only an expression of his deep gratitude, never obligation, right? So he didn't have to do anything. He just, they just chose to do this, but then they also chose to pretend like it was everything. And that's like where the mess starts in the passage. Now, I don't know why he, he did what he did, what they did, what they did. It doesn't totally make sense to me other than the fact that like maybe there's this bandwagon effect in play, right? Like everybody is doing it and he doesn't want to get left out. So like, of course, I'm going to do it too. Like go Eagles, you know, you, you get that bandwagon thing. I get into the, the two-man luge about every four years because of the bandwagon effect. Some of you are like, luge? What are you talking? It's the Olympics. The Winter Olympics is going on. Let's try to keep up. Um, I get into the bandwagon effect is in play, right? So we can kind of appreciate a little bit the movement that's happening and them wanting to be a part of it. I think, I think that they're genuinely inspired by the work and the sacrifice and the generosity of Barnabas, except one thing is, is different. Whereas Barnabas used whatever was at his disposal to be a blessing to people. We've got Ananias and Sapphira using this, this stuff around to receive applause, to receive acclaim from people, right? Like they're trying to get something from people and Barnabas is simply trying to give things, be a blessing to people. And that's that's the crucial distinction. But they think to themselves, like, I know how I can eat my cake, have my cake and eat it too. I know how I can do this. We're, we're going to sell this thing. We're going to pretend like we're making a generous gift, but we're not actually going to give everything away. And before we go any further in the story, like, I don't just want us to condemn Ananias and Sapphira. Like, we're not that kind of church, right? We're not just going to look down on these people for screwing up and say, you hypocrite, you liar. You sinner. We're not that kind of people. I hope, I hope that you're not that kind of person. So what we're going to do instead is to read this as a story, not as a story that simply just did happen, but we're actually going to read this as a story that does happen. And not just to other people, but, but to ourselves, actually. That it happens to me and it happens to you. That one of the things that they're guilty of is like, is like holding something back from God and pretending like they gave it all in. And what we see is, is their thing was a financial thing and maybe yours is too, but it doesn't have to be just a financial thing, right? Like it could be a time thing. It could be a time thing to say, God, I'm going to give you Sunday mornings, but Monday evenings, Friday evenings, Saturday evenings are all mine. God, I'm going to give you maybe the morning, but I will not give you the nighttime. God, I'll give you this much, but not that. That is for mine. What they're guilty of is, is any time that they keep something to themselves and say, no, thanks, God, you don't get this part of me. It could be a financial thing. It could be a time thing. 
It could be a friendship thing. Like I've got a group of friends over here and God, like, listen, they're mine and I'll kind of, you know, reflect you as, as I see fit. But God, I really don't need you infiltrating like this friend group of mine because I just, I want to have that space all to myself. It, it could be a friend group. It could be a time group. It could be a political view group uh, deal where you're saying, God, like, I don't need you and your convictions, like getting in the way of, of how I deal and how I vote and what I think about what's going on in different capitals and places. around. I don't need you infiltrating any of that because this is over here, God, and I'm going to keep that back to myself. It could be all these things. It could be a career thing where you're kind of going out and you're saying, God, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to rise the ranks and I'm, I'm going to be this great person and do this awesome thing. But God, I don't need you like getting in my way when that happens. It's any time that we pull something back from God and saying, yeah, but you don't get this part of me. So what I'm just, I'm simply saying, what I'm simply saying is that Ananias was a hypocrite. Ananias was a liar. Ananias was a sinner. And we are all Ananias. It's not a story that happened. It's a story that happens. Let's, let's keep on going with it. Then Peter, remember Peter? So Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan, that seems harsh, has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Now, now, just to kind of create the, uh, the, the juxtaposition here, in the previous chapter where we saw Barnabas so filled with the Holy Spirit, and now we see Ananias and presumably Sapphira filled with Satan. And you think like, that's super harsh, but like, like listen, listen to this though. The last person in the biblical story that was called out as being filled with Satan, who was Peter, was the guy who just said this. So Peter, he's saying this, not in a, not in a judgmental, not in a condemnation sort of way. Peter, I think, is, is presenting this as saying like, I know what it's like to be in your shoes because it wasn't very long ago, weeks or months, not years, that I was standing there and Jesus was, Jesus, was saying to me, get behind me, Satan. Like, I know what it's like. So he's doing this in like a helpful kind of corrective way, but, but we kind of get the impression though that he is not interested in this helpful corrective kind of thing because of what happens next. Verse four, Peter continues, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And then, and then after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you... What made you think of doing such a thing? Listen, this is, this is the rub. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear, that's probably an understatement, a great fear sees all who heard what had happened. And then in verse six, we get the appearance of the very first church interns. Some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him away out and buried him. That's what it's like. You know, it's on the application. You got to be willing to do just about anything. Um, we'll just continue the story. It gets worse. About three hours later, his wife, now Sapphira comes in and not knowing what had happened, Peter, Peter asked her, tell me, he said, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Now wait, before we hear the answer, like, wh what would your answer be? And keep in mind, 
Like you and your husband, right? Or you and your wife, like you decided this. I mean, they, they both knew, it says, what was going on. They both decided to do this thing. And so she thinks for a second, it's like, I knew it was gonna get tough. It's time to double down. Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, listen, interns again. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Now, one of the many things that you could draw from this, one of the, the many things is I just, I have to highlight uh, like this instruction that God gives households to run. Like a lot of you, I know, thinking about marriage, like you're reflecting on your marriage or someday in the future or something like that. And, and so I wanna like highlight that God actually gave specific instructions, guidelines, rules, if you wanna call them that, of like how to run the household well. And one of the big ones is in Ephesians 5.20. It was Paul, not Peter now, but Paul was a part of this early movement group of Christians. Paul writes to these Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians 5.20, and he says, submit, serve one another, each other, men and women, women and men, out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on in verse 21, he says, wives, submit, serve your husbands. Husbands, you have an added thing on there. Don't forget, love your wives. You probably need to hear that. You're like looking into the future as a prophetic word, right? But like the caption on this thing is, is submit to one another, serve one another because of this thing that Jesus has done for you, presumably because Jesus has, been, has served you so incredibly much and has done so incredibly much and has been that model of sacrifice so incredibly much for you. The least you can do, husbands and wives and anybody in a relationship, is to serve one another. But somehow, this gets like twisted around, like in our church culture. Somehow, somehow, somehow like we, somehow we distort this into thinking that like, well, that means that I can, I can like ship out my spiritual responsibility onto my husband or onto my wife. Right? Because they're maybe the more spiritual one or they're the, the better Christian one or like whatever the dynamic is. We think that because, uh, because there's this model in here to like submit or to serve the other person, th that, that it, it gets us out of our own individual spiritual responsibility to pursue Christ and to pursue holiness. I think one of the things that's going on in this passage is that she's standing there now and she's really posed with the question of who are you going to serve? Who are you going to submit to? Your husband or God? And she thinks for a moment and she says, I know I should never turn my back on my husband. So she says, my husband. Right? And that, that's what costs her everything. I think of one of the many takeaways out of this is to, is to simply say, you can, you can follow your husband, your wife, you can follow them into a mistake, but you ought never to follow them into sin. Out of submission or out of, or out of an act of service, you can follow them into maybe a, an unwise or a bad decision, but you should never follow them into sin. The spiritual responsibility 
like we all carry, and we, we can't export that onto a family member. Uh, kids, you can't export that, export that onto your parents forever and say, listen, because they're a Christian, because they're all good, because they're so spiritual, like I'm okay, and I don't need to be now as a, as a grown adult. Like there's this moment that we have to stand there before God and to own who we are and what we did with our lives. And that's what's happening here. And that's that fear that, that captures them that's now just going to get worse. So we might as well wade all the way down into the rabbit hole. Then the young men came in, right? Of course, we see them again. And finding her dead, carried her out. And you know what happens. They buried her beside her husband. By the way, that's the first, it's the first two uh, burials of Christians in the New Testament church. And I just kind of think that's like a commentary on just Christians in general, like as one, I'm happy to admit, like the first two burials that we know are like lying hypocrites, but that's, it's kind of calling out the church right there. Verse 11, again, an understatement that great fear, fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. One of the things, one of the reasons why I think this story is so I'm going to say terrifying, but, but also like why we don't go to this very often is because the book of Acts is filled with so many awesome, amazing things. And then we get to this story kind of relatively early on in, in, in chapter five. And it's like the brakes get put on. It comes to a screeching halt and we think, what in the world? How could this possibly happen? And it's like they're introduced into this concept that being a part of something bigger than yourself also means being a part of something that you can't, that I can't control. And that's that, that fear, I think, that now, that now gets them. Um, John Piper uh, wrote, and, he, and I think he gives like this, such a helpful image of this fear that, that like rapture, that captured the, the hearts, the imaginations of, the, of these people, the early followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. He says, now imagine yourself um, walking, uh, walking by a, a, a shelf, an ice shelf on a glacier somewhere and just peering over the edge into the crevasse, into the abyss really, and, and seeing this danger down there, right? And just the awe that comes along with that. And then a storm comes, as they do. This blizzard comes from out of nowhere and just like comes on you. And the hail and the snow, I mean, it's threatening to, to push you off. And you start to wonder whether or not you're gonna be able to, to maintain your footing in light of this terrifying storm. And just when you think it's gonna, it's gonna push you into the abyss, like you see over that there's a cutout, that there's a, a cleft that you can climb into and stay safe. And so you do, and now, you're, now you're, you're not in the storm, but you're watching the storm pass by in front of you and the wind is howling and it's terrifying and it's awe and it's no less inspiring. And it's just, it, it's this sight to behold, but since you're in the cleft, like you're safe from it and it's not harming you. And Piper goes on, he goes, that's, that's the church. That's what the church is. The church is this cleft cut out of the rock that's the protection for this this force that's moving by in front of you. And as you look out and as you watch this all go through, you might have a couple thoughts that come to mind. Number one, that, that this is not a force that you would want to trifle with. And number two, that you would, you would not want to be on the adversarial side of that force. That you want that working on your behalf and not against it. And I think that's that fear that Ah, oh, 
mixed with the intimacy of God in that, in that cleft, that place of saying, he's, he's protecting me, he's the provider, but, but that won't for a minute diminish his power and his, and his holiness. Now we talk about, like this is the thing, we talk about these signs and these miracles. Remember miracles last week? And I had everybody like, oh, point up and point forward and point downward. And it was awkward. And it took about 10 minutes to get everybody to do it. But I wanted every, you were there. I didn't need to repeat it. One of the things that we did, remember we said that the miracles point forward. They point towards this time in the future. And we said, when we're talking about a hero, uh, miracle, those signs are incredible because it points us forward to a time when the lame leap to their feet. And, and it's incredible because the, the blind see and the deaf hear and the dead raise. And we read that passage from Isaiah that, that the angels are going to come back and, and, and bring back the sons, the lost sons and daughters to their moms again. And it's this beautiful picture of restoration. But I want us to see that though dreadful, this is another example of a miracle, of a sign that points forward into the future. We think this is a story that just happened. No, 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 this is a story that happens all over because for each one of us, there is going to be a moment, going to be a time when each one of us is going to be standing there in the shoes of Sapphira, in the feet, in the spot of Ananias and have to give this account before God of the life that they live. This isn't something that never happens or just happened once. This is a story that is continually playing out. And it's a miracle that points forward to all of us one day are going to be standing in those shoes. What would your answer be? I see the, the question, I think, that we should be asking isn't why did they die? I think deep down we all know why they died. I think deep down we know, we know the sin and we know how God feels about that. We have story after story, we know. We know that when we come into the presence of God, it's a, it's a terrifying and catastrophic thing. It should be at least. We should be mindful of that at least. Annie Dillard writes in her book, uh, Talking to a Stone, she says, you know, you know, it's a funny thing. When we come into worship, when we come into church, but like we think it's this, it's this predictable, prepackaged tour of the absolute, of the almighty, right? And so when we come, and she writes that women shouldn't come in straw or velvet hats. No, no, no. We should come into worship into the presence of God wearing crash helmets. She says ushers should issue, issue life preserver vests and, and hand out signal flares. They should lash us to the pews or in our case, the chairs, because she says we don't know what might happen if the slumbering God might awake and deal justly with our sin, with our faults. The question that we have has nothing to do, I think, with why did they die? I think we know. The question is what's he keeping us around for? Not why did they die, but why don't we? What does he have us here yet still for? R.C. Sproul said that if, if we are offended by the, by the quick, swift judgment that God pronounced here, then it reveals our ignorance of God's holiness, 
and our sinfulness and the seriousness of the incompatibility of the two. We know why they died. We just don't know what God is still keeping us around for. I want to help with that this morning by sharing a story that this story is actually based on. It's an Old Testament story in the book of Joshua. As many times happens, the New Testament stories are really just an, a personal rehashing of the Old Testament stories that have already taken place with the whole people of God. So this isn't, this isn't the first time that the people of God has come across as an unstoppable movement of God. There was a time in the Old Testament when the people of God who were invading their promised land and they seemed like this unstoppable movement and they were taking city after city. And when it seems like they could not be stopped after, after they, they brought down the walls of Jericho, not with an army, remember, but with a marching band. Some of you know that story. They marched around it a few times over the course of a week and the walls just came a tumbling down. They took this massive city, right? And then, they, and then the, the machine kept rolling and they went on to the next town over to take that one too, only they were, they were stopped. They hit a wall. The movement came grinding to a halt. And the people asked, why? Now, now, now just like get something straight here. The, in, in like military strategic terms, this is unusual because it would be like as if, as if an invading force from Canada, now I just keep, stick with it. I know it's hard to believe, but like they came over and they took Grand Rapids. Again, it's hard to believe, but like Grand Rapids just now belongs to Canada. And they just, they moved on and they, they, were, they wanted to take all the surrounding areas and towns as well. So they, they moved on from Grand Rapids after this huge victory. And they, and they moved on to south to, to little Dutton right over here. And it's like, they're too big. They're too strong. There's too many of them. And you guys are going like, what? I don't even know what Dutton is. That's exactly the point. Like... How is that possible? And then the people get lined up one after another in front of Joshua and they're asking like, why? Why does it seem like the power of God has just left us? And Joshua lines up all the tribes. And then out of one tribe, he lines up all the families. And then out of all the families, he lines up all the men in that family. And he identifies Achan, one man, and he says, Achan, do you have something that you've been hiding? And Achan goes to his tent and he says, you told me, you told all of us when we took Jericho to leave it all. But I saw the gold, I saw the silver, I saw the clothes lying there in the rubble and I couldn't just leave it alone. I hid it. Underneath my tent, I hid it. And it's because of that that the power of God just evaporated from the people. The holiness of God just left the people. It would have nothing to do with them. You see, one of the takeaways of that is to say that, that your sin, whatever it is, you think it might hurt just you, but it doesn't. Like you, can't, you can't tell, you can't predict who's going to get hurt as a result of it. And the other one, church, I just want to ask, what's hidden underneath your tent? Like, what's lying there that, 
needs to be dealt with. It needs to be addressed. What's in there that, that makes the, the holiness of God, the power of God, just evaporate away from you and say, I cannot have anything to do with that. And I don't just want this to be like an exercise that, that some of us, like an intellectual exercise that we think about what could be in there. We have prayer people, prayer team in the back by the table, by the, by the ramp. And during the last song, they wanna pray with you. And they wanna pray the power of God over you and into you so that you can take whatever junk is there and to, and to let it go. Because the, the irony of the gospel is this is that when we own that junk, when we own what's hidden, God is going to release us from it. But if we try to hide it, he's going to hold us accountable to it. So release it. Own it. The counselors say all the time, you're only as healthy as the secrets you keep. What, church, is hidden in that tent, where do you need to see the power of God rise in your life? The gospel says this. The gospel says that you are more broken than you would ever believe. And actually, God already knows that. He already sees that. This is not news to him. That you're more broken than you ever believed, but you are more loved in light of it all than you could ever possibly imagine what is hidden in the tent church. Own it. Experience the freedom of God from it. I invite you to stand up. Stand up right now. I want to share one more thing. One more thing, church, because this isn't the last time. This isn't the last word. This was merely the first setback that they experienced. This is the first time the church had experienced death. It's the first time the experience had a church had experienced lies or deceit or hypocrisy. This is their first setback. But the movement of God moved on. Amen. The movement of God continues to move. The movement of God continued in the Old Testament when they came to Ai and the sin prevented them from taking that city. But the movement of God in those times in Joshua's day moved on. And the movement of God in the story of Acts moves on. That the Holy Spirit was still at work. He didn't leave them. He didn't abandon them. He kept moving on. Church, it is time for us all to move on in the holiness and the power of God by taking that junk, by taking that garbage, the sin in our life, and leaving it to Him, releasing it to Him, and be freed from it. Church, dear Jesus, May we come to you with hearts of confession. May we come to you, Lord, with a spirit of readiness to be able to be liberated from those things that keep us down, from those things, the lies that separate us from you. God, may your spirit break down the walls in our heart that, that try to keep our dignity intact and try to make us pretend like we have it all together. God, may we be a people of honesty and integrity and one that receives your good grace. And Lord, if we may be so bold, Holy Spirit, may you continue to bless this movement, your movement called the church. In Jesus' name, amen.